Hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest edition of Infection Control Matters. I'm Brett Mitchell, and today our special guest is Professor Claire Rickard. Welcome, Claire. Thanks, Brett. Good morning. Look, it's wonderful to have you here. Um, Claire Rickard is a Professor of Infection Prevention and Vascular Access at the School of Nursing and Midwifery and Social Work at the University of Queensland. And Claire has been working uh, in the area of healthcare-associated infections and particularly vascular access devices and infusion therapies for a number of years. And she's uh, one of the world's experts in this group. Uh, Claire set up and established the uh, Alliance for Vascular Access Teaching and Research in, in 2007. And that's an investigator network uh, promoting high-quality investigator-led research and predominantly clinical trials uh, around vascular access. And a huge number of randomized control trials have come out from that group. And today, we get to talk about one of those recently published in The Lancet. And uh, that article, we'll put the details of the article on our, our website as usual, but it is called Effective Infusion Set uh, Replacement Intervals on Catheter-Related Bloodstream Infections, the RSVP trial, which is a randomized control equivalence non-inferiority trial. That's a mouthful, Claire. Um, welcome again. And um, it's um, something I guess you've you've had some great success with in recent times in terms of uh, randomized control trials, but can you give us a background to why do this trial? What was the background for this specific uh, trial? Yeah, thanks, Brett. This is um, a topic that's really been curious to me for many years. So back to when I was working in intensive care units and I was rotating around the different hospitals um, as part of the critical care postgraduate course. And I couldn't help but notice that each and every ICU had a slightly different um, time frame for routinely discarding all of their infusion tubing and um, infusion fluids and so on uh, as an infection prevention measure. And they were all very confident that that was the exact right interval, um, <laughs> either, you know, two days, three days, four days or weekly. And um, being a very black and white thinker, I kind of just thought there must be a right answer. And um, at first, of course, like everyone, I turned to PubMed and hoped that someone yeah. else would provide me with the answer uh, with a nice randomised controlled trial to give us evidence, but um, soon discovered that there really hadn't been a lot of work done in that space. Mm. Any randomised controlled trials prior to this one, Claire, that you know of? Yeah, we actually did end up doing a Cochrane review to synthesise all the previous trials a few years ago, and there have actually been about 5,000 patients randomised into 16 trials. But unfortunately, most of them had studied shorter periods, so they'd been done quite some time ago, um, mm. you know, originally in the 70s, if you would mm. believe it. Wow. The CDC was recommending daily replacement of all infusion tubing, wow. um, which, you know, we, we just can't believe these days. Yeah. Um, so in that trial, in that Cochrane review, there were only two studies that had ever looked at use beyond four days, and yet mm. the CDC at that stage was recommending that you replace the infusion sets four to seven day intervals. Mm. So um, we kind of felt that there had been a big lag between the existing evidence and um, you know what practice had started to creep into. I love that story because. Um you know, it's the simple things that sometimes we look at and we go, we haven't actually got much good evidence for that. Um, or it's such a simple thing we're doing in clinical practice, 
we, we think, why, why? What's the evidence behind that? Um, so I think it's a it's a great idea when we start with these types of problems we're trying to solve, and particularly when there's an evidence gap, of course. Um, yeah, I've always also thought about nursing time, I guess, because um, one study, I didn't do it, but someone looked at intensive care nurses and what they spend their time doing, and it was about 70% of their time had something to do with vascular access devices. Wow. So either caring for them, taking blood from them, giving medication or documenting or assessing them. So, you know, even though we just take it for granted because nearly all the patients in hospital have some type of vascular access device, but it actually does chew up an enormous amount of um, resources and nursing time. So we want to get it right. Yeah, that's a really good point, isn't it? And I think sometimes we just keep doing more and more things and not thinking about what we could potentially take away um, as well. So where did you do this study, Claire? So this was a very large study, so we really needed to call in all the friends we had. (laughs) So uh, we did end up getting funding from the NHMRC, which made it, of course, um, possible to do a large study. And we ended up with 10 hospitals around Australia. So about half were in Queensland um, and the others were in New South Wales or Western Australia. And we managed to have eight adult hospitals and two paediatric hospitals because that was, we felt really important that these guideline um, informed recommendations needed to be based on all patient um, cohorts, not just sort of done in ICU or done in cancer, but we know that, um, you know, central venous devices in particular are used throughout um, all of those areas. Yeah, that's a lot of hospitals. That's a massive amount of work to uh, to get to get that it kind was of study a massive there. amount of work and it took us a very long time. So, mm. um, you know, you have to really be persistent with these kind of things. And we only um, managed it, of course, because of the, the goodwill um, of the hospitals who did receive funding, but I'm sure also, um, you know, contributed mm. a lot of in-kind support and enthusiasm um, along the way. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's it's an interesting point we've, we've, that, that probably doesn't always get appreciated, just how long it takes to to organise these types of trials. People think that's a great idea, just get on and do with it. But it's it, they're really hard. They do take yeah, a lot of time. And so. it's got harder over the years. You know, when I started in research, we could do randomised controlled trials in our hospital with medical superintendent approval and mm. waived consent. Um, I mean, that would never <laughs> – that's like a dream. I think I might, might have had that dream last night, but it's not a reality anymore. Um, we, you know, now we have to have at least six months of – uh, pre-study uh, ethics and governance and registration and um, you know not to say that a lot of that isn't based on very good um, and you know careful safe processes but um, obviously it, it does also make it very expensive and mm. you know like your everyday nurse or doctor at the bedside it's pretty hard for them to be able to run this sort of um, trial mm. um, so really the only way to do it is in a group of um, yeah. you know keen beans and, and luckily we managed to find enough of those to get this study done. Excellent. So this study was the aim was to compare the effectiveness and costs of the seven day intervention versus the four day control of the infusion set replacement to prevent uh, catheter-related bloodstream infections. And um, we alluded to this, it was a, a randomised control study in those 10 hospitals. What, what, at what level did the randomisation happen, Claire? Was that at the hospital level or was that at the patient level? Uh, it was actually at the patient level. So um, the research nurses, once they had got consent, they would contact the website. We had a special randomisation website built by the university and that then um, ran, randomised them to either four-day administration set replacement or seven Mm -hmm. and that was stratified by the hospital as well as the catheter type because we looked at 
um, all sorts of central venous access devices as well as uh, arterial devices in the yeah. ICU. And we also stratified by adults or children and cancer or ICU patients just to make sure that we could test the intervention, you know, equally and fairly in all those different sort of subgroups and populations. Yeah, excellent. So obviously it wasn't possible to blind the intervention to the to the people because doing the, the intervention because they needed to know when to change the the uh, the lines. But um, in terms of other other blinding in the study, were you able to blind whether you know someone had a bloodstream infection and 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 mask that from the from the people participating in the study? Yeah, yeah. So it, as you said, we couldn't ma- mask the patients or the relatives or the clinical staff who were changing the sets because they had to actually do it. But mm. um, we did blind the outcome assessment for the primary outcome. So the research nurses would consolidate all of the, you know, bloodstream infection data and any other microbiological or relevant clinical data. And then they would present that to two of our infectious disease physician colleagues uh, who are authors on the paper. And they would, um, you know, in a blinded manner, decide whether they met the criteria or not for a catheter-related bloodstream infection or a CLABSI. Um, as well as we had some scientists in the laboratory who looked at a subset of samples that we'd taken out of these administration sets. So when they came down after four or seven days, we would swab inside them or take some of the fluid. And so those scientists also did not know which group um, the tubing had come from or how long it had been used for. So we were able to put some um, you know, control of over-bias on those outcome assessments. Excellent. And just in terms of other things that might um, confound the outcome, so um, I guess yeah, there's lots of things that spring to mind from hand hygiene to to, to skin preparation prior to insertion. Uh, how does how did you sort of handle some of those uh, some of those things? Did you let nature yeah. take its course? Well, this is, I guess, you know, the fun of clinical research. Mm. <laughs> you know, it's it's the real world, so you get real world results, but you also have all of that real world uncertainty and um, inconsistency. And, um, you know, the biggest uh, benefit we have is the large sample size. So whilst, um, you know, each hospital in some ways was um, similar to itself and to others, there would have also been differences. So, uh, of mm. course, generally all the hospitals follow the same skin prep um, procedures, but you can't guarantee that every person did it correctly yeah. because it's um, considered a pragmatic trial. Um, yep. You know, that's considered acceptable that you just have a very large sample, you let the real world go for it, and you see how the intervention works in the real world. Well, that's right, because we know that's what's going to happen. Anyway, um, we can have a policy, a guideline, but still there's going to be variation in practice. Yeah, otherwise the results might not work. So if we mm. had a whole team of crack research nurses or hot IV you know, practitioners mm. in there doing everything perfectly and found one result, if we then published and you know, people tried to use those results in their everyday busy clinical lives, mm. then, um, you know, things things would no doubt be different. So it's very important to sort of put enough control and rigour from a research perspective that you can test the intervention, but, you know, also let, let the real world be the real world. Yeah. You mentioned a big study. It was. There was just under 3,000, um, and please correct me if I'm wrong with any of this, uh, 3,000 participants, so around half of those in each of those four and seven day arms. What did you find? What were the so the, the main outcome was the catheter related bloodstream infections. What did you what did you find? 
Yeah, we found um, equivalent results for catheter-related bloodstream infection in the central venous access device group, and we found non-inferiority, so no worse bloodstream infections in the arterial line group. The um, rates were about 1.6% of central lines had a catheter-related bloodstream infection and about 0.3% of arterial lines had a catheter-related bloodstream infection. And that was, you know, in line with our hypotheses. Um, the study, of course, can't rule out that there is some small effect that couldn't be um, picked up, even yeah. with 3,000 patients, but it certainly can rule out that there's any large difference or large effect of, of routinely going and throwing away all the infusion tubing every few days, um, you know, especially considering what we know happens to those infusion yeah. sets. As soon as they're put up, you know, they're not always treated with 100% respect like, like they should be. So yeah. perhaps it's no surprise that, you know, throwing them away every few days and starting again um, doesn't seem to negate um, any poor practice that may occur over that time. Yeah, so what you're saying is that the study uh, identified essentially no difference between seven and four day replacement of those lines on catheter-associated bloodstream yeah, infections. That, that's right. So this really helps us because the current, you know, CDC guidelines say discard them between four and seven days, which mm. is quite a, you know, large time for people to kind of decide which policy do I write down in my hospital. Yeah. So this study really confirms that seven days is as good as four days mm. so that hospitals should feel confident that they can update their policies to seven-day replacement of those type of infusions. There were some mm. that we didn't include. So, you know, patients that had lipids hanging um, mm -hmm. or patients with cyclosporin, you know, blood infusions, uh, yeah. inotropes, cyclosporin. So, you know, those specialty bags, you would just change those as the pharmacy directs you. But for all of that patient's other infusions, you could go to seven days. Yeah. Um, just, just thinking out loud and uh, I, for a moment, did you think, or I know your study wasn't powered to this and wasn't set up to do this, but just out of interest, um, any thoughts on a time to infection? So did you look at that in any sort of subgroup analysis where you but I wonder if the longer it goes on, the risk increases rather than just the head-to-head -head comparison. Noting, I say, that, that it wasn't powered to do this, but it, just out of interest, I wondered whether you sort of had a little look at the data and uh, looked at anything like that So, yeah. um, in the people who had infections. Yeah, and we didn't specifically look at that, but I guess most of the infections occurred in the long-term central venous access devices. So the PICs, the short-term CVCs, the art lines, they were generally um, not infected. Mm -hmm. it, they there were more um, occurring in the tunneled central venous devices over time, and I mean I'm get, just thinking about the Kaplan-Meier curves. You know mm -hmm. that probably did start popping up around three or four weeks um, mm -hmm. were when the infections occurred. So you know that's I guess also what you might expect with those long term um, cancer patients. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, and so the other side to this study was cost. And you wanted to look at some of the costs associated with um, four versus seven day replacement. So how did you do that part, Claire? Yeah, so we, we worked with a health economist and we collected data on all of the patients, but we also had a subset of more intensive data collection where we actually physically watched nurses do these replacement procedures. So, um, you know, 
take takes me back to my ICU days when you'd have on night duty if it was day three or whatever the day someone would one or two people would have to make up this huge Christmas tree we would call it of maybe <laughs> 10 different infusions you know very expensive bags of TPN yeah. and all sorts of things wheel them over to the bed and then you know usually two of us would do a sterile ish or ANTT procedure mm. where we would disconnect reconnect all of those infusions so um, we needed all that data to think about time of wages so nursing time to do the procedure to prepare for the procedure and of course there was a lot of um, disposable um, waste and medication cost in terms of replacing all those those fluids yeah and so what did you find on the cost side of things so not not surprisingly i suppose um, if you don't throw things away as often you save money so um we actually saw that on average for central venous catheters it was nearly 500 australian dollars per patient was saved over the course of the catheter Uh, for outlines it was about 45 dollars which of course is is less because they're not in place for as long generally Mm -hmm. and there's a lot of these that get put in every year in healthcare facilities yeah there sure are there's been some estimates in the literature in in queensland alone we purchase about 16,000 central lines every year Um, and we worked out with the health economists that on average Australia would save about three dollars per head of population every year by stopping this um, routine replacement every four days and those Mm -hmm. results obviously should apply to other countries as well. Yeah no reason why that why that wouldn't be the case is because the the way in which you measured the time is um, going to be reasonably standard across the place. so I guess the next big question, Claire, is what do you want to change from this? What do you what do you hope now happens with these findings? Yeah, well, I guess obviously implementation is always mm. the first um, challenge after you publish a big study. Um, the major infusion therapy guidelines are the Infusion Nursing Society guidelines, or they're called standards of practice, which I encourage everyone to get because they're very comprehensive and very good. They've unfortunately just come out this year, so they Ah. won't be updated for a few (laughs) years. But um, generally what we see is every time the various um, infection prevention guidelines are updated, you know, for example, the EPIC in in the UK or CDC or our Australian Mm. guidelines, they'll pick up. Um, RCTs and generally, you know, pretty quickly update the guidelines. Um, of course, in Australia, this trial is is pretty well known, I think, and, yeah. and already a lot of hospitals have moved, especially the ones who were involved in the trial. Yes, I was going to ask that question. Do you know whether the, the participating hospitals have switched over themselves to a seven-day? Uh, I'd, I'd say about half of them have and the other half yeah. are sort of a bit nervous without, um, you know, a, a guideline recommending yeah. it. yeah. Yeah, but I think that, you know, there was an editorial published with this paper about the environmental costs. And I think in this, you know, day and age when we're trying to save the planet, Mm. you know, we do need to think about all these bits of plastic that are manufactured and then we incinerate them because they said that there was half a kilo a day per hospital bed of hazardous waste. So that's the stuff that gets into our rivers and our blood you know yeah. with all the dioxins and stuff and that's all that hospital plastic that we yeah. throw away and incinerate um and there's also i think another three kilos a day of non-hazardous waste so you know we, we do need mm. to be responsible um not just for the patients you know i think mm. we've we've checked that this is safe for patients which is the first priority but you know we also need to think about our poor little planet and try that's to right. reduce our footprint yeah you look in in, in covid the amount of 
gloves that are being used inappropriately like, um, around the place, you know, people in the public and police and various other things are saying wear gloves and you think I'm not really sure why you're wearing the gloves. Yeah. But anyway, um, yes, all adds up in terms of plastic. Um, so, Claire, can you can you give us any insight into what might be next? Have you got any other um, burning projects that you think you really want to do or things that you got in the pipeline? Oh, gosh, there's so many. There's always Brad. something, isn't there? There's always something. But, I mean, I guess <laughs> from this trial. You've a chance to plug to try and sure. see, recruit some hospitals here. <laughs> Absolutely. But this trial specifically, I mean, we did see this huge difference in the number of central and arterial lines re- removed for suspected um, CLABSI versus mm. the number that actually had it. Like, it, And it was really substantial. It was like 10 times the number uh, uh. removed. And, you know, removing a central line is that someone still yeah. needs is not something you want to do unless yeah. you have to do it, right? So I yeah. think that we, we need to sort of do a bit more work in that space of decision-making criteria or in-situ mm. diagnostics to try and um, actually make better decisions about removal of devices because mm. um, I think there's also a lot of waste and risk there. Yeah. Um, but I think yeah. from a nursing point of view, something that we've been working on a bit the last few years is needless connector decontamination, you know, looking at chlorhexidine and alcohol versus alcohol alone, Um, looking at whether nurses and doctors actually are decontaminating before Mm -hmm. they inject or before they disconnect tubing and how long and do they let it dry. And, you know, I think that is is an area that um, we could do a lot more work in because as I come back to, there's no point throwing away the sets every even every seven days, if in between people are injecting bacteria and off the needless connector because they haven't adequately decontaminated it. Well, Claire, thank you for all your um, work in this area because you really have led the way. Um, And and it's wonderful that, A, it's an Australian and, and of course, be a nurse um, to to be doing this this work. I know it's a very much collaborative work with with a whole range of people, but um, thank you for your contributions to, to this area over many years. Oh, thanks, Brad. I really enjoy it and I have the best job in the world. So, yeah, I'm not complaining. And and as I said, it's only possible because of these massive, you know, teams of passionate people yeah. that we work together. And thank you very much for your time today, Claire. Um, it's we, we know that um, people's lives are exceptionally busy at the moment, so we appreciate your time and coming and having a chat with us about, about your work. You're very welcome. Um, overnight, I've just got an email from my kids' school saying that they have to go and be COVID <laughs> tested today. So that's my next job. Uh, <laughs> thanks for your time. It was a pleasure to be on the podcast and I enjoy listening to every episode. Oh, thanks very much, Claire. And thank you to all those uh, listening online. And um, from me, it's goodbye from now. <laughs>